Good afternoon and welcome to the COVID Calls. This is a daily discussion of the COVID-19 pandemic with a diverse collection of disaster experts. My name is Scott Gabriel Knowles. I'm a historian of disasters at Drexel University in Philadelphia. Today, we have a discussion of fair housing in the COVID-19 pandemic with Marie Flannery, Mel Jones, and Orla McCaffrey. Just a reminder, you can catch COVID Calls live every weekday at 5 p.m. Eastern time on YouTube. Just go to the COVID Calls YouTube channel to watch. You can also watch COVID Calls on Facebook Live and on Periscope. You can hear COVID Calls anytime, recorded as podcasts on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean, or anywhere you get podcasts. You can also keep up with COVID Calls via Twitter using the handle at US of Disaster or at COVID Calls. Please do help spread the word and send suggestions for our future guests and future topics. And please feel free to suggest yourself as a future guest. As of today, December 18th, 2020, there are 1,000,000 668,030 deaths from COVID-19 globally, according to the Johns Hopkins University Coronavirus Resource Center. There are 17,269,542 cases reported in the United States. There are now a total of 311,529 deaths from COVID-19 reported in the United States, and that's up from 309,334 reported yesterday. As a way to bring some humanity to the numbers, I've been reading a life story or a story of advocacy for those impacted by the pandemic. I'd like to continue that now. The headline is, the CDC banned evictions for those affected by COVID. Why are tenants being thrown out on the street? This is by Gretchen Morganson, Adil Kaplan, and Leticia Miranda, appeared in NBC News December 17th. The day before Thanksgiving, Steve Cowley, a beverage salesman, was at home in Pensacola, Florida, when someone started pounding on the front door. It was the county sheriff serving an eviction notice. Cowley, 36, had nowhere to go. Out of work because of COVID-19 and behind on his rent, he was doing his best to survive on $275 a week unemployment checks. His car had been repossessed, he said, so he could not live in it, a common refuge for evicted tenants. The sheriff's visit surprised Cowley because he provided the county court with documentation required under the federal eviction moratorium issued in September by the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, the CDC. The ban aimed to let renters affected by COVID stay in their homes, even if they couldn't pay their landlords. But Patricia Kinsey, the only judge hearing eviction cases in Escambia County, where Pensacola sits, ordered Cowley out of his home documents show. Kinsey sided with a lawyer for Cowley's landlord, a big Canadian company that owns 19,000 rental units in North America, who argued that the CDC order was unconstitutional. Agreeing with the landlord's lawyer, Kinsey ruled that the CDC moratorium represented, quote unquote, an unlawful taking by the U.S. government of landlord's private property, rental income. At least one federal judge in Georgia has ruled against landlords who argue the CDC ban was unconstitutional, but that hasn't stopped Kinsey from continuing to evict based on it. On December 1st, she ruled against another local renter using the same rationale. The CDC's eviction moratorium was supposed to protect renters in all 50 states through the end of the year. 
Keeping COVID-affected renters in their apartments, the CDC said, would reduce the potential for virus transmission, likely to occur as displaced people were forced to move in with family or friends or into homeless shelters. But nationwide adherence to the moratorium has been spotty, housing experts say. Some judges, like Kinsey, are rejecting the moratorium outright, while others are evicting based on landlord-friendly state regulations or disputed claims about tenants violating their leases. Evictions processed while the moratorium is still in place are a preview of what some experts predict will be a wave of homelessness when the CDC moratorium expires on December 31st. Access to congressional funds earmarked for rental assistance also ends then, programs that have helped landlords as well as renters. Apart from the temporary CDC moratorium, the U.S. has no federal eviction policy, and each state has different rules for landlords and tenants. In Ohio, for example, landlords can proceed with evictions if a tenant is just one day late with the rent. Some states have implemented their own eviction bars, but at least seven states, Arkansas, Georgia, Missouri, Ohio, Oklahoma, South Dakota, and Wyoming have never put such protections in place. All are Republican-controlled, and most have resisted many COVID-19 measures. The homeless wave is already starting to build in some places, housing advocates say. Benjamin Horn, advocacy director for the Legal Aid Society of Columbus, Ohio, reported a significant increase in eviction filings in the most recent week in his area, over 500 compared with at most 300 previously. Amanda Frank, 39, of Worcester, Ohio, near Akron, became homeless in November when a judge ruled against her in an eviction proceeding. For a year, Frank had rented a townhouse from a local contractor and builder, Summer and Schwarzentrooper, where she lived with her boyfriend and 17-year-old daughter. Frank had fallen behind on her rent after her boyfriend was laid off due to COVID-19, she said. Although she received rental assistance from a local church, and ultimately paid her landlord what she owed, the judge hearing her case sided with the landlord, saying she'd been able to pay the rent but had not done so on time. Working for a house cleaning company, Frank had become the sole breadwinner and she provided documentation to the court that she'd been affected by COVID-19 as required by the CDC moratorium, she said. She was given a week to get out and at 3 p.m. on the last day as she was packing, the landlord's representatives arrived and started tossing her belongings into the yard. They broke a lot of my things by throwing them out the door, said Frank, who's never been evicted before. That was the most devastating thing I've ever had to go through. Local charitable organizations have helped Frank collect rent money for a new home, but every landlord she's applied to has turned her down because of the eviction on her record, she said. This is the typical experience of renters with evictions in their histories, housing experts say. For now, Frank and her boyfriend are living in their car. Her daughter has gone to live with Frank's ex-husband. Steve Cowley was evicted from his Pensacola apartment. He was awaiting a rental assistance check to put toward a new place. As he packed up, Cowley was philosophical. I had a stroke seven years ago, he told NBC News. I taught myself not to get stressed. If it's not in your hands, there's nothing you can do. In addition to an increased risk of COVID-19 transmission because of evictions, there are costs associated with these cases that will be borne by taxpayers, analysts say. According to research by the National Low-Income Housing Coalition and the Innovation for Justice program at the University of Arizona, if one quarter of the people who are evicted wind up in homeless shelters, taxpayers could face $130 billion in costs for emergency medical treatment, foster care, shelter, and juvenile delinquency services. For now, 
the lack of a federal policy and approach to evictions during a pandemic means states are taking the lead. This results in a lot of variation and a lot of discrepancies amongst the states in terms of their responses, said Paul Nalette, chair of the political science department at Milwaukee's Marquette University. He went on, I think that can introduce unfairness for sure, because if you're a renter in New York versus a renter in Alabama, then shouldn't you have the same rights? Okay, we're going to turn to our conversation today. Very excited to have three guests with me today. I want to introduce them to you now. Marie Flannery is the president and CEO of the Fair Housing Center. And since joining that organization in October of 2018, she's been actively engaged with community efforts in the Toledo area, serving on the Housing First core leadership team and homelessness board and participating as a member of the United Pastors for Social Empowerment and the Interdenominational Ministerial Alliance. Previously, she was with Inland Fair Housing and Mediation Board, which is located in Southern California. And she was with that organization since 2012 and was their president and CEO since 2016. Mel Jones is a research scientist and associate director of the Virginia Center for Housing Research at Virginia Tech. She leads housing studies and housing research in Virginia and beyond. She specializes in quantitative analysis and data-driven policy connecting housing to broad urban issues, including economic and community development, individual economic opportunity, and well-being. And our third guest today is Orla McCaffrey. Orla covers consumer finance and regional banking for the Wall Street Journal. She previously interned on the journal's markets desk. She's a graduate of the State University of New York at Binghamton and has a master's degree from the Craig Newmark Graduate School of Journalism at the City University of New York. Orla McCaffrey, Mel Jones, Marie Flannery, thank you so much for making time uh, to join me on COVID Calls today. Thank you. Thank you. So I'd like to start the way I usually do, which is just to find out where you're calling from and how the pandemic is looking there today. And Orla, I'm gonna start with you on this one. Sure, um, so I'm in Washington, D.C. currently. Um, it's, it's looking, I think, like it looks in a lot of places across the country, uh, cases rising. Um, and I think we might see a joint shutdown possibly in the next week. Um, we have indoor dining uh, closing next week. And then, you know, maybe a government sh shutdown could be thrown in the mix too. So best of both worlds. I, this, I've talked to lots of journalists in these last several months, and I'm always astounded at how you continue to do your work in this time. Could you say a little bit about how you've had to modify the way you work under these conditions? Sure. Um, so I'm kind of a funny uh, case because I only started in, in January, so I only had two months of, of non-pandemic um, work experience. But um, honestly, it's it's just been, I don't know, I just feel really grateful for the, the opportunity to like talk to real people during these times when their lives are being absolutely um, upended by this pandemic. So um, yeah, I don't know how I've adapted to it, but it's just, it's a, it's a great job. That's really interesting that you didn't have a reference point with the journal before doing basically Zoom journalism. I, I know in, over the summer, some journalists were able to finally get out and do what would considered reporting before this year, but it seems like most of your work has been confined to distance, distance huh? Yeah, that's, that's the way it has been for our team, at least. Uh, Let me bring Mel in. Um, Mel, where are you calling from and how's it looking there? So I'm calling from Blacksburg, Virginia. 
um, which is in the southwestern part of Virginia and um, very much rural compared um, to northern Virginia or the places that people think about, like Richmond and the Hampton Roads area. Um, COVID feels a lot scarier here right now than it used to because when the first shutdown um, happened for us, COVID hadn't really reached us yet. Um, you know, we shut down like everybody else. We didn't know what was going on then, but now our cases are, are rising like the rest of the country, but this is sort of the first time for us outside of the spike for when the students came back to Virginia Tech, we had a, a little spike and then kind of got it under control again, but now it's more community-wide. So it's, it's feeling a little scarier. What is the relationship between the, the campus population, student population and the community there? Can you say a little bit more about that? Yeah. Well, first I want to say that our campus experience, I think, is a little bit different than a lot of other folks' campus experience. Uh, Virginia Tech was the only university in the United States to have a testing facility that wasn't already um, promised to a hospital. So we were able to test a lot of students, a thousand a day. Um, and, and it really helped, I think, our campus manage expectations and students' understanding of what was going on. So when the students came back, we had an initial spike, but then past that, we stabilized and we were pretty effective in isolating the campus population from the community population. So it didn't spread over. Um, so like I said, this is in the past month or two, the first we've had of sort of community spread. And um, so, so Virginia Tech did a really good job. I'm glad to hear that. I mean, the, the variability across campuses in the United States has mm -hmm. been uh, pretty extreme, yes. I would say. And what percentage of your students are back? Well, all of them came back. Um, they all came back. <laughs> all of them back, yes. Really um, so uh, some chose to stay home, um, but most of them came back. We had hybrid coursework, lots of outside classes while it was still nice outside um, and hard, fast quarantining, very strict mask um, ordinance suspension. Mm. If, if you were caught without it, if you were asked to put it on and you didn't, you were arrested. Um, so it was very strict. And um, we, I think that for that reason, we got through it without feeling very scathed. Well, I'm going to have to follow up with that. I haven't heard of mask arrests yet. That's one thing I hadn't seen. Yeah. Um, well, so we have our own police department at Virginia Tech, um, and it was a three-strike rule. So if you were asked and you didn't do it, um, and then you were asked more harshly and you didn't do it, then uh, police got involved. Wow. Okay. Well, thanks for that orientation to your situation there. Marie, let me bring you in. Where are you calling from and, and how's it looking there? I'm calling from Toledo, Ohio. Uh, we're in Northwest Ohio, just south of the Michigan border. And it is looking fairly scary to me. Um, I know that we have a high incidence of community spread. Every county in Ohio right now meets the criteria for high incidence. Um, we have a curfew in place um, that you know bars and restaurants are closing. Uh, at 10 o'clock and you're not supposed to be out unless you're going to or from work, things like that. Um, I do feel that the community uh, in Northwest Ohio, our, our government officials and, um, you know, just the community in general, the faith-based community, we've all come together uh, in a very positive way. 
Um, you know, of course, there's folks that don't want to comply with mask mandates and things like that. But, um, you know, we're all staying as safe as we possibly can, um, even though we do have a high incidence of community spread right now. Um, our staff at the Fair Housing Center, we've been working remotely since March 17th. And every time I thought it was going to be safe to have everybody come back to work, there would be a new spike or something else would happen. And so I think it was probably in August I finally gave up on, you know, when trying to predict when we would be able to go back to work. And so we're probably looking at late spring of 2021, um, you know, and depending on how things go with the vaccine and all of that, um, you know, we'll get back to in-person work as soon as we can. But in the meantime, we've all kind of adapted and figured out how we need to do this and how we can still serve our clients. So um, I'm at the, it's not broken, let's not fix it right now mm -hmm. kind of place. And we're just all maintaining, uh, you know, the the distancing and everything that we've been doing all along. How's morale? Because, I, you know, I think of an organization like yours, really a mission-driven organization, that people who are called to that kind of work, they really want to be together. And there's, I mean, we all, we all do, but I think certain kinds of organizations really do thrive on that sort of in the office connectivity, uh, mentorship and things that go along with that. How have you adapted? Well, you know, that's been probably the most challenging aspect of this. Um, you know, we all miss each other. Um, the kind of work that we do helping folks with landlord-tenant issues and working on, you know, housing uh, discrimination investigations, all of that, it's a very, um, you know, it, it, it's a very, it's a thing that we all do collectively. And there's a lot of interaction in the office and things like that. So right away, I had set up, um, you know, three times a week, um, you know, getting together so we could see each other's faces on Zoom. Um, and also just to troubleshoot things as we went along. Um, but that's, you know, that's not the same. We all know it's not the same. Uh, but, uh, and then as things, you know, became normalized, uh, you know, now we're twice a week, we get together and we still do our case review meetings and all of those things. Um, and, you know, we've, we've just had to adapt, but I really have, you know, been concerned as like, I know myself feeling isolated to make sure that, you know, staff still feels connected and all of that. We had our little year end, um, normally we would have had a lunch. Uh, with our board today and we had a zoom abrasion and so you know we you know socially distanced delivered gifts to each other and mm -hmm. all of that and we made the best of it and i think that um that's all all we can do at this point um but right morale has been a tough thing especially because we all actually like each other and miss seeing each other we're yeah. kind of a huggy bunch and yeah so that that's been that's been a challenge but um i think we've all gotten through it the best way we can. I'm the head of a history department and we just had our holiday party right before I came on with you all. And uh, Marie, you've just made me realize that I, I didn't send gifts to people. I, I, I'm, I'm feeling ashamed now. That I didn't, I'm going to take a, a page from what you just said. And maybe if they're not watching, they won't know that it didn't, uh, I would, didn't intend that to arrive. Well, when I talk about gifts, party. I'm talking about <laughs> little you know like i made these in honor of ruth bader ginsburg these Those little ornaments uh, cool. for everybody so because you know yeah. that was something that we really wanted to honor this year um so you now know I'm we stealing do really a second idea from you in 30 seconds keep going there you go <laughs> <laughs> um so let's turn to the conversation and uh, you're all working 
um, in very similar areas, but from different vantage points and different types of expertise, which is great. And uh, Mel, I want to start with you. Um, and you've been really prolific in this time. You published a piece over the summer. I just want to read a couple sentences from it. You said, um, you wrote, as a community, particularly one that's growing, we need to consider the importance of each member's health, physical, mental, and financial. Housing plays an enormous role in each of these aspects of our well-being. So I feel like that's a great place to start with this, which how do we think about the health impacts of housing insecurity? And I know that's a huge question, but I'll let you take it first and then we'll open it up to anybody else who wants to talk about it. Well, so at my center, we like to think of housing as the absolute bedrock of everything, period. Um, people use homes not as only as shelter, but places to educate themselves now, places to work, obviously, um, but also places for uh, restoration and peace. Um, and, and so they're, they're fundamental to our health. A lot of times when we talk about uh, housing and health, we go straight to substandard housing. Is there a hole in the floor? Is there a lacking of plumbing? Um, are your appliances not safe? Uh, is your heating not safe? But really, housing provides a very fundamental um, piece of our, our well-being. Um, and I think that the impact is, is greatest and, and most um, impactful among children. Uh, so children are, are at home a lot, and, and it is truly their one place. Um, and when their parents don't feel comfortable there, they pick up on that. And when their parents are stressed about paying rent, they pick up on that. And there are implications throughout their life in nearly every aspect of their life. Um, so, so we can't get beyond the individual meaning of, um, or, or first we have to understand the individual meaning of housing. And then we can understand about how if a person doesn't have good housing and then they go out into the world, their impact on the world um, is, is what the community needs to be thinking as a whole. And I say to people a lot, if you have a grumpy barista and they didn't smile at you and they were annoyed with you the whole time um, that you were getting your coffee order, think about how much they get paid and how far that they have to commute to get there at five or 6 a.m. in the morning so that they can serve you at 7.30 um, and you just walked from your apartment. <laughs> um, so, so there's a lot going on and we just have to be conscious of, of how people's homes impact every interaction we have. Marie, can I bring you in on that? Absolutely. Um, it's been interesting because I think that COVID and, uh, you know, the whole work from home and school from home, remote learning, all of that has really illustrated to people that might not have realized it before the disparities that exist in our society. Um, you know, so <clears throat> you have children in the suburbs uh, whose parents can work from home. And so, you know, while it's been challenging, they've been able to fold remote work, remote learning, for example, into their routines um, and be there. Um, <clears throat> you've got someone that has, you know, uh, that lives in, say, in the urban core in Toledo, has a very blue collar kind of job, you know, doesn't have good quality internet access. Um, it's been challenging for those children to participate in education, for example, the same way. Um, in and so we've had neighborhood centers and things like that that have stepped up um, and taken on this sort of tutoring role 
um, and being a place where you know children can go with their you know little Chromebooks and, and all of that and have staff on site to help them in a way that was never necessary before. Um, and so there's been a lot of community um, engagement to meet needs as they as they've arisen, but it's also illustrated. Toledo is an older city. It's you know an older Midwestern city, and we have we have affordable housing from the standpoint of you know the average rent is six hundred dollars a month, which sounds great, but we also have a very old housing stock, and so we deal with things like lead-based paint. Um, we're still dealing with that problem. We have you know a huge uh, population of children that have elevated blood lead levels because of where they live. And it's in the urban core, it's in the city. So, you know, when you think about it, those children spending more time at home is not necessarily the best place for them to be. Um, you know, and that's where the Fair Housing uh, Center and other community advocates, uh, we've worked really hard on um, getting, you know, some lead-based paint legislation for, you know, remediation and things like that finally passed. Um, uh, and also recently addressed source of income from a fair housing perspective, city of Toledo passed an ordinance that you can't discriminate against folks based on their source of income, which includes housing choice vouchers, which will hopefully help folks with mobility. So, you know, accessing how, you know, housing in um, areas of opportunity. Um, so it's all, you know, my mind goes a million places as I'm sure everybody on this calls does. Uh, when we start talking about these things, but the pandemic has really served as a catalyst to illustrate disparities that we all knew existed because where you live matters. You know, housing is the foundation of everything that you are or have the potential to be, I like to say. And so, um, you know, it's illustrated that in a way that I think it's been not a positive, the pandemic, nothing about it is positive, but I think it's raised an awareness um in the general community that hopefully we'll be able to harness you know when this is all over mm. it, it, just a couple things that to underline from what you both said i mean one is the um and, and they're kind of the opposite sides of the problem but interconnected one is the the health impacts the mental health impacts of housing and security which may cascade out as you were saying mel in ways that are we don't necessarily consider it's a community it becomes a community problem but the other, Marie, you're describing um, is that when people are in the lifeboat and in our homes and our apartments have become our lifeboats during this pandemic and they're forced to be at home, not all of these homes are good places to be that materially, that the deferred maintenance or lead-based paint or um, you know, whatever it may be in terms of the condition of the home. So you yeah, I can, I can tell you that we launched uh, recently, actually in March, um, it was already in the works, but it became more necessary than ever. We launched a landlord-tenant mediation program because as the Fair Housing Center, we always got a lot of calls that weren't necessarily discrimination-based, they were landlord-tenant based, um, and we didn't have the capacity to help folks address those issues. So we launched this landlord-tenant mediation program in late March, and uh, you know, the calls that we get, the amount of calls we've been getting has just been increasing exponentially every month. And the number one basis of calls, you would think during this time, maybe would have had something to do about rental assistance or things like that. No, it's been repairs. 
Um, mm -hmm. that's, that's the number one basis of calls that we get. It's almost over 50% of our landlord-tenant calls deal with repairs. And that maybe that's a uniquely Toledo issue because of our older housing stock, but I don't think it is. Um, it's those are the places folks can afford to live in and, um, and, and right, and the quality and the landlord tent, you know, upkeep, things like that. All of this just sort of blossomed mm -hmm. during, uh, you know, the pandemic in a way that, you know, maybe I, I guess I'd never thought about having a pandemic before. Um, you know, this situation is pretty unprecedented, but um, I really was a little bit surprised at first by surprised and not surprised by how many calls dealt with repairs and the quality of housing. Orla, let me bring you in and let's talk a little bit about um, this issue of people uh, staying in their homes. And you had an article um, in the Wall Street Journal, November 28th, the headline was pausing loan payments during coronavirus is producing uneven results. So let's talk a little bit about um, how people, what's been going on in terms of what lenders are doing um, to have people, landlords, to have people stay in their homes. Sure. Um, so I guess you could say I look at um, housing just as like the business of housing. So how lenders um, kind of balance their bottom line with um, whatever the government says they have to do and whatever um, they think is ethically um, acceptable. Um, so, so one of the ways that this crisis is different than uh, the financial crisis is that crisis was all centered around, around housing. So that kind of informed uh, how the government uh, structured its relief programs this time. So one of the major things in the CARES Act was the, the mortgage forbearance, where if you're a homeowner, you can ask um, ask your uh, mortgage lender to postpone your payments for up to 12 months. So that was really the main um, housing relief that the federal government did. Uh, there were also you know, eviction moratoriums, there, but there wasn't really any substantial rental relief. Um, but of course, this crisis is different. And most of the, the large majority of the people who are uh, being hurt and who are losing their jobs at the highest rates are um, lower income people who are more likely to be renters. So what's ended up happening is um, homeowners who are already in a, you know, pretty stable spot to begin with, you know, re uh, relatively a lot of financial resources, um, they end up benefiting from, from this mortgage forbearance, just taking it out, you know, even if they don't need it and maybe paying down like higher interest debt in the meantime, or, you know, just being able to skip payments for a couple of months, um, maybe while their um, while their income is temporarily down. Um, so, so the man in this story, um, Jim Curran, he was able to to do that. He found another job quickly, and then I think maybe six months after, he he refinanced his mortgage and he got it down like thirty seven hundred dollars to twenty two hundred dollars. So that's kind of like an extreme example, but um, yeah, it's just a really disparate impact in terms of um, housing relief right now. It's interesting that you draw that connection across from the 2008 fiscal crisis. Can you say a little bit more about how, you know, how you see, uh, you know, over this year, policymakers, you know, elected officials and the financial sector using that as a, as a vantage point through which to see the pandemic? 
Sure. So, so I read a bit about um, a good bit about banking as well. Um, so a lot of the, the ways banks and other kind of just consumer lenders have um, prepared for what they thought the pandemic would be like is is putting a bunch of money aside basically uh, each quarter because they expected loan losses or you know the money they have to write off because people couldn't make their loan payments. They expected those to be super high because they rose to kind of like the, the low single digits during the financial crisis, which doesn't sound very high, but it, it kind of is. Um, but that's actually all been really low, um, even lower than this time last year, um, because of a lot of this uh, government relief, like PPP, that's been targeted at businesses. So, yeah, just a lot of the the protections people put in place uh, didn't end up being needed or just didn't help the right group of people, the way I see it. Uh, Marie, did you want to react to that to tell you know a little bit about how you're seeing that play out there in in Ohio? Well, you know, I, as Orla was speaking, um, it, it was interesting to me because in my past life, um, up until 2012, I was a foreclosure attorney in Wisconsin. And so from 2002 through 2012, I was working for Wells Fargo and Bank of America and, you know, all of the big banks uh, doing mortgage foreclosures. So I kind of saw that trajectory as, uh, you know, we, you know, the subprime mortgage crisis happened. Um, and in 2012, I found my way to fair housing, thank goodness. And, um, you know, so now I'm on the, the right side of it, at least. But um, I always say I'm fixing my karma, you know, kind of one day at a time. <laughs> well, you've really seen both sides of this then. I have. I have. And it's interesting to me from a, everything always for me tracks back to fair housing. And it's interesting because as a result of that crisis uh, in, uh, you know, the, the mid 2000s um, or, you know, starting in 05, so many people of color, so many low-income folks who had achieved home ownership lost their homes. And they did not rebound. That community did not rebound in the same way that you know other folks did. And so we are back to a point where our African American, for example, homeownership rate is the the what it was before the Fair Housing was Act was passed in 1968. Hmm. So we've lost all of that ground. Well, you think about it even the folks that had owned homes, they became renters. And, and so then we've probably got a disproportionate number of people of color who are renters now, even more so, you know, than in the past. And then yet all of, a lot of the relief, not all, but a lot of the relief was targeted at, um, you know, home ownership, because I think we figured out about housing counseling and relief programs and loss mitigation during that period of time. Um, and so it was probably very easy to ramp that back up. I don't work in housing counseling anymore. The agency I came from did. And so it was probably very easy to you know, come up with these programs and just sort of duplicate what we did. But we've never had a wide scale na national rental assistance program. And so that's why what I've seen here, and I'm sure it's been true throughout the country, is that the rental assistance has been uh, very patchy. Uh, you know, there's multiple programs that people have to try to apply for that have different requirements. Um, they require some, you know, buy-in from the housing provider. And we were surprised in Toledo, at least I was, that a lot of the housing providers chose not to participate um, because it required them to, you know, take an affirmative step and register their property with the city as a rental property, or they had to sign an affidavit that they wouldn't evict the tenant. All of these things where I think it would have been much more successful if we had just, and there's been studies that show that this works, just given 
tenants the money to pay their rent. Um, you know, but another good thing that came out of that is that Toledo did just pass pay to stay legislation, uh, municipal ordinance, so that if, you know, sort of like the right of redemption in a foreclosure, only it's in a rental, uh, you know, contract. Uh, so, you know, if they are served with a notice of eviction or something like that, and if they redeem, if they pay their back rent, then they can't be evicted. So, you know, that's a positive that's come out of this. But it's just interesting how, um, you know, everything always tracks back to housing and always tracks back to fair housing. Mel, let me just see if you want to react to any of that. And I want to you you reflected on this also in a, a New York Times uh, magazine piece you were interviewed and and you said, um, in that piece that local governments don't really have the resources to deal with the magnitude of the problem. Um, the problem was so big before COVID and now it's that yeah. much bigger. It kind of speaks to this sort of patchy, this patchwork of policies around the country, state and municipal. Yeah. Um, so one thing that I wanted to react and just kind of flows right into that is we in 2009 had more than 10 million renters who were paying more than 50% of their income for housing. Um, and so if you're paying half of your income for housing and you miss a couple of months, but are still given the opportunity to make it up, then you're spending 100% of your income on housing in those months. And it's not possible. So there's so many people in our country that I describe, you know, if you're spending more than 50% of your income on housing, you're really one hardship away from homelessness. Um, and, you know, that could be COVID. Uh, it could be breaking your leg. It could be um, a mechanical shutting down if you're a homeowner, for example. Um, just, just one hardship away from homelessness. Um, and, you know, we, we don't see all of the homelessness um, in, a, in a lot of the country because just living over a grate that's heated to some degree and you have a awning um, over your head, that's not available in, in the vast majority of the country. Um, so people double up, they triple up, um, they couch surf, they live in their cars, um, they live in open public buildings and, and people don't realize they're there. So I think that we have no idea of the magnitude of the impact thus far on on people across our country. Um, and people don't necessarily know, and particularly in this time when so many people are experiencing eviction and hardship for the first time, they don't know how to go about um, accessing all of the resources that might be available to them. Um, so I, I think that local governments also have a hard time putting their finger on what's the issue here, um, because the intake isn't like we would hope that it would be. Um, so, so that's one thing. But even, even before COVID, um, which was my point in, in that Time Magazine article, um, even before COVID, local governments are, are taking on the vast majority of the responsibility for housing affordability problems. So since the 70s, um, we have been losing federal funding. Uh, very few states have been able to um, ramp up their funding significantly in order to make a, a state level um, solution. And so local governments have been trying to take on this issue. 
but they simply don't have the money. They don't have the capacity. Um, and then there's another problem, which is housing shortages at the local level benefit individual homeowners. So I live in Blacksburg. Um, we have been growing. We are the high demand area for our MSA. Our days on the market on average are three. So hmm. homes uh, sell on average within three days. Um, and people like that because it means that their 1960s home is suddenly worth, you know, three bedroom 1960s home is suddenly worth $300,000 more. And so there are a lot of people entrenched in this community that can't help but think, I don't really want more housing to be built to accommodate all the people that need it. Right. Um, and, and so we've, we've found an entity, local governments that, that need to take responsibility, that need to build affordable housing, but don't have a constituency that's wholeheartedly on board with that. Um, and, and so it's hard to address issues like this because there's conflicts of interest. So they're the pre-existing and, and then the pandemic throws all of these inequalities in, into relief. I wanted to follow up with something you just said that I think is from a research perspective is really fascinating, but also really mortifying. When will we know? I mean, you're describing a situation of people who may have housing precarity or going in and out of homelessness. And even the definition of what that means is a little variable. Um, so what strategies do you have to, to get a handle on that? Oh, um, I guess so, I'm asking you to tell me your recipe for your research. But I know, no. I know. Um, homelessness is, is the hardest one. And it's not my expertise, but right now I feel like the best folks that um, the best folks at counting the number of people experiencing homelessness are public schools. Um, so public schools are required uh, to identify uh, children whose families are experiencing homelessness. And I think that that is the most consistent uh, data point that I have found. Um, it, it is problematic um, to count people experiencing homelessness. It has been for a long time and we're getting better and better at it, which makes it look like there are more and more homeless um, individuals, but uh, not, not necessarily. Um, so, so getting a handle on, on it is hard, um, especially since there is such a, a big pre-existing problem and that people experience that problem in, in so many divergent ways. You know, we have people um, who are, are getting evicted, but then we also have people who I'm very worried about as we head into winter, their um, you know average utility bill in winter would be $1,000 plus, and now they're spending more time at home um, and they have to heat that house that much more. Um, and, and will those people just choose to abandon uh, their manufactured home because they can't, they can't do it anymore? Um, there's, there's so much and I, I can't and offer an, well, solution to, to the size of the problem there. Yeah. Marie, did you want to jump in on that? Well, we'll just, bring Orla back in. Right. Um, so interestingly about when it comes to counting homelessness, I also serve on our local uh, Lido Lucas County homelessness board. And that is the, you know, the lead agency for our local continuum of care. So in January is when we typically do what's called a point time count. Um, where, you know, on a given night in January, everybody in the community, we, we work together, we go out and we uh, try and count uh, both sheltered and unsheltered homeless population. Um, 
it's another thing that you never would have thought of that is made more challenging by the pandemic because um, local, you know, going and engaging face to face with uh, somebody to complete a survey um, is, at, or showing up to do that wearing full, you know, uh, COVID gear is probably a little sc bit scary of a proposition to those folks. So um, a lot, HUD is actually giving people the option to request a waiver to do the unsheltered count. And so I think this year, when we need it most, we're probably not going to have that great of data as far as who is unsheltered. So um, Mel is certainly right that the school, uh, the schools are going to be a good place uh, for that because they track homelessness. They also have a different definition of homelessness than HUD does. I know it's a little geeky in the weeds, you know, data thing. But um, so it's just it's going to be interesting that we find ourselves in this situation where we really need to know who needs help, and we're going to be constrained in our ability to figure out who those. Orla, let me bring you in on this issue of homelessness. Any anything you've been writing about in in this regard? Yeah, no, I kind of just wanted to to comment on, on one of the things Mel said about um, just being. So many people are one one crisis away from from becoming homeless, especially for the first time. Um, I spent a good part of this past week um, specifically specifically talking to people who are just living in their cars. Um, for the first time, um, like a, a new car. I talked to one woman living with her son in, in a 2020 Nissan, um, um, which she was the only positive thing I get about her situation, I guess, because she doesn't, you know, want people to know um, that she and her son are, are living like that. Um, and, and then another woman um, who was living in her, her 2000, I think, Toyota Corolla, um, and. and these are people who have never experienced anything like this before. So they they are trying their best to to manage, um, but a, like a luxury for them these days is is literally like the six dollar shower that they can get at the truck stop if if they have money left over that week. Um, so it's just such a crazy crazy change that's happening um, for a lot of people. And and most people I talk to also um, because they're receiving so little um, in unemployment are, are not able to cover um, medical um, for like prescription medications right now. So you know one woman is a diabetic who right. like hasn't taken insulin in days um, and can't eat healthy foods. So her sugar levels are everywhere. It's just it really does impact like every area of health like we talked about before. I I just wanted to and just want to reflect on that article I read at the top something really struck me resonating with what you're saying is uh, Amanda Frank, one of the people featured in the article who talked about um, her eviction and the first time she'd ever been evicted and having her belongings strewn in her front yard. And, you know, I think, I don't know if what kind of calculator there is out there for the trauma of being unhoused, being evicted, or even worrying that it's going to, to happen. Um, but, you know, those are, there's so many seemingly uncountable aspects of this pandemic, which have real weight and real impact on people's health, on their personal relationships, sex, drug and alcohol um, abuse, and many other things. I, I don't know. I mean, I guess to a certain extent, that's a journalist's work too, is to try to capture it through these individual stories or uh, something that opens into a much broader set of problems we seem to be facing right now. Yeah, yeah, and that's one thing that's um, like probably a challenge sometimes for me to balance. You know, wanting to 
protect these people's dignity as, as much as I can and not really like, sure. you know, dig too deep or like expose too much, so much that they, they would be uncomfortable with, but also wanting to include enough detail so that people like really get the picture of this is what's happening out there. Um, so yeah, that, that's kind of a line we walk a lot of the time. I want to remind everybody you're listening to COVID calls and today we're talking about fair housing in the pandemic. I want to talk a little bit about um, what we might expect uh, to come. And this is, you know, for people who listen to COVID calls regularly, um, you know, we talk about this disaster as one that has a, it has a epidemic component, but it has clearly has an inequality component, a racial component, and this financial component. So it's the, it's this compound disaster and the financial aspects of it and fair housing and homelessness will probably be the long tail of this, um, are really important to keep our eye on as we go into 2021. Orly, you published a piece um, earlier in the year, um, which surprised me, I wasn't aware of this, about lenders um, asking people taking out a mortgage to confirm that they do not intend to seek forbearance at the moment in which they're taking out the mortgage. Can you explain that to us a little bit? I mean, when I read that, I thought, how can they, just how can they get away with that? But then also it's an insight into the timeline that these institutions are thinking about covering their risk right now, I think. Right, so this is a strategy um, on the part of mortgage lenders to, it, it kind of falls into the category of just things they're doing to to protect their own risk, to protect their own bottom line. Um, so when someone who has a mortgage goes into forbearance, the, the lender is, or the servicer, technically, the, the person who can, um, collects payments, who is oftentimes the lender, um, is required to advance payments, like full payments, to to the person who ultimately holds that mortgage, which can really just, you know, cost a lot of money in the short term. Um, so that's one negative side of, of forbearances. Um, but, but I think the larger thing that lenders are doing here is um, kind of just narrowing the credit box um, entirely. And, and what that means is just, um, you know, maybe having higher um, minimum credit score that you will, um, that people have to have for you to lend to them or, um, you know, uh, stronger debt to income ratios, things like that. So banks are doing whatever they can to to not make what they classify um, as risky loans, but, it, but in the process, it often boxes out a lot of people who, you know, maybe do have lower credit scores um, who might have been on the fence of, of getting mortgage beforehand, but now we're like 100% excluded from getting one. And politically, that's seen as um, that's seen as good behavior on behalf of the banks in the context again of 2008, right? I mean that they don't have to have political cover for those more stringent, more conservative moves. Right. So Orla or that is our... I'm just fascinated by the politics of this because in the moment in which you might think they would want to liberalize their policies, they're restricting them, but there doesn't seem to be any political backlash against that or anything I've seen. Right. So that's also a tough line for lenders to walk. Um, they were required to tighten their, their lending policies a lot after the financial crisis. Um, but but lenders and, and banks in particular also like to say, well, you know, we can be the solution um, here. We can lend. Um, to, to help people get through this crisis, but that's not really happening on a, on a very right. um, meaningful scale. Like there hasn't been a ton of small business lending, um, I don't think outside PPP. Um, although mortgage lending is, is totally different because um, the mortgage market has um, been booming this year, which is a totally different story.
Marie, I'm going to bring you in on this uh, in, in terms of thinking about there's last time I checked, there is still going to be a new administration. Um, haven't checked the news in the last hour, but it seems like that's going to happen, which will mean a new HUD secretary, mm -hmm. a new approach to this pandemic, um, racially, epidemiologically, and economically. What are you looking for? Oh my gosh. What the last four years for fair housing have been challenging isn't even the right word. Um, you know, we have seen the rollback um, systematically of so many civil rights protections across the board. Um, every agency in the federal government has had something, right? And HUD in, in particular, um, you know, they rolled back the affirmatively furthering fair housing rule that dealt with how jurisdictions and cities and counties uh, look at fair housing in their community. Um, they rolled back the disparate impact rule, which was a, a thing where, or there, where we're able to uh, bring lawsuits uh, for fair housing violations based on neutral policies, but that have a disparate impact on protected groups of people. Um, you know, I, I've said for the last four years, if I could have spent uh, less time, you know, working around uh, the HUD process uh, when it comes housing discrimination and just focused on what our job is uh, would have gotten a lot more accomplished. So um, it, it's been a crazy four years. So I'm really looking forward to back to normal, whatever that is. Uh, but, you know, I think from a regulatory perspective, the new administration has a lot of things to go back to. Um, you know, the affirmatively furthering fair housing mandate of the Fair Housing Act, um, you know, which basically says if you accept federal dollars for housing and urban development, that you will run your programs in a way that affirmatively furthers the purposes of the Fair Housing Act, which those purposes are not just to prevent discrimination, but um, to address, you know, historic patterns of segregation that were, you know, result of redlining practices that go back to the 30s and 40s. So, um, you know, and all of that, I mean, at this point, you know, the latest executive order, we're not even supposed to talk about systemic racism in our state. Um, we're a fair housing organization. So um, it's just too much double speak, thoughtfully. You know, there's just, there's just too much of that kind of Orwellian vibe that's, you know, really... Uh, kind of punctuated the last four years. And so I personally am looking forward to, uh, you know, working with folks, um, and, and I'm not saying anything about the core group of people at HUD, the career folks, um, they sure. care about, you know, fair housing and you know housing discrimination as they ever have. But I'm talking about from, you know, top-down leadership um, that actually thinks that, fair housing is more than just building more affordable housing. You know, um, that's been the current administration has been, well, let's just loosen up zoning regulations so that we can build more affordable housing. And if, you know, um, and if jurisdictions build from affordable housing, then they've affirmatively furthered fair housing and that's good enough. Um, and it's not because there's no look there of, you know, where are they building it? Um, you know, and uh, all of that and perpetuated a lot of, housing patterns um, that, you know, have historically existed and it's not going to do anything to move the needle to allowing people to live in neighborhoods of opportunity where they want to live. I mean, historically, we think of, of disasters as an opportunity for Republicans and Democrats to find 
common ground and to score easy political wins. Uh, that's what the, pol the public is often looking for in, the, in that kind of a moment. Mel, again, thinking about the next administration as we go into 2021, the next Congress, are there places where the two parties can find common ground and actually make progress in fair housing? Yeah, I think so. I think that, um, you know, part of our challenge with fair housing and having to um, make so many rules about who gets access to housing is that we simply don't have enough of it in the right places. Um, and I would really love to see um, the next administration just go full force on let's build it and make sure people can get in it. Um, and I think that that's going to require investments in entrepreneurship, investments in the construction industry, investments in innovation that I think are economic drivers enough to be um, um, having bipartisan support. Um, likewise, I hope that we um, get back to things like uh, affirmatively forwarding fair housing in an aggressive way because a lot of communities have continued on with that work despite um, the current administration's uh, uh, efforts to thwart it. And for that reason, many of them can hit the ground running. And I hope that we don't say, okay, you have another four years to make this happen. Um, I hope we say you have a year to make this happen. Uh, if you can't make it happen in the year, here is the capacity that you need to be able to do that. Um, I, I would like to see HUD be a, a newly aggressive um, group. I don't think that's going to happen because of the recent uh, political appointee rather than with someone who has real um, understanding and, and background and, and, and passion for housing. Um, so I, I don't know what HUD is going to do um, and maybe they will just kind of continue on their path and if so states have to take responsibility for this. Um, they, they have to turn it around for themselves. That's distressing to me for a variety of reasons but you know and it's been a tension throughout this entire pandemic that states and in many cases municipalities and counties have had to develop their own strategies public health yeah. strategies and as we were talking earlier their own housing strategies and whatever they may be but that really exacerbates i mean this is if you take a nash step back in a national picture i don't have much confidence that in mississippi or texas or alabama they can solve these problems or have the will to at the state level or the municipal level that they might where i live in new jersey or where i work in pennsylvania so to me this sort of lesson in federalism we've had this year which is that yeah states and localities can actually do a lot we may not usually explore those options that doesn't seem sustainable in a country as as complicated um with pockets of poverty uh, throughout throughout the whole country, but particularly in, in, you know, Appalachia and in the South. Mel, I mean, I don't know, that's not, that's a, that's my ranting rather than a question, but I, I wonder what you think about that maybe at the state level and bring back this sort of cooperation model that we like to think should exist in a, with a federalist government structure. Yeah, I mean, I think just to take a kind of practical realist point of view on this is states will start to realize that they have to catch up. Um, states that begin to address housing in an aggressive way will start to pull ahead and be more successful in economic growth. And those that don't will continue to fall behind um, and people will start to leave them. Um, 
you know, also I want to point out that not everybody is experiencing the housing crisis like people um, in heavily urban areas. And so, for example, you gave New Jersey as, a, as an example, and they've been experiencing housing issues for a long time, and you guys have a long history of trying to address them at the state and local level. Um, there are many communities in Virginia, and, and you know, you mentioned Appalachia. This is the first time amid this pandemic that they're starting to feel the housing shortage, starting to feel the crisis um, in the same way that many urban areas have have felt it. And, and recently I worked um, in Des Moines, Iowa, and when I looked at their housing affordability issues, I said, this is not an issue compared to Virginia. You know, it is an issue there. It's an issue everywhere. But but in Virginia um, that I'm used to looking at, we're, we're at least 30% cost burden, for example. And, and Iowa wasn't there yet. And I was congratulating them for, for starting to plan now because their crisis isn't there yet. And um, in a way, local governments are better positioned to do this than anybody else. Um, you know, I'm thinking about Toledo because one of my students has recently done some work on Toledo and, and you guys face, um, you know, an, an issue where you have a lot, a disproportionately large rental population, right? And um, you need to start focusing on home ownership more in order to, to anchor people in your community and not have people leaving all the time. And um, in addition, you're, you're, you've got some vacancy um, issues there. I'm sorry to be talking about your community, but you know. No, no but it's true. It's um, true. But we also have, you know, issues with infill development because of <clears throat> all the teardowns that happened as, a, you know, those houses that didn't survive the foreclosure crisis. Um, you know, we have neighborhoods where, you know, there's maybe two houses left on the block. Um, and what do you do with that land? So we've got we've got a lot of challenges. We definitely and, do. And individual cities have so individual challenges that if we could build up the capacity and we could figure out the, the different strategies that work, really local governments are best positioned to deal with this stuff um, because they know it better than anyone else. Yeah, the problem is that if you have local governments that they have to also have the will to yeah. do that, um, you know, and that gets us into nimbyism and, and you know, all of that. Um, you know, Toledo, for example, we recently, and we're very proud of this, I think we might be the first uh, city in the country that's done this when HUD rolled back the affirmatively furthering fair housing rule, city of Toledo passed an ordinance that said that regardless of what the federal government says that we have to do, we will still look at impediments to fair housing choice, mm. and we will still conduct a study. We will still take affirmative steps to address the identified impediments. And, um, you know, I'm, I, I, I'm very proud of that, that, um, you know, they were, they were so, and it was unanimous um, on city council. So, um, and, you know, city council's not, nothing is usually unanimous, so, or rarely anyway. So, right. um, you know, local localities do, but they have to also have the will to do well. Yeah. We're almost up on time, and I just wanted to give each uh, each of you a chance to talk um, just a little bit about, you know, a project you're working on or a story. You know, this pandemic is now entering, I guess we might say, another phase with the vaccine coming on board. And so it's going to start the, the kinds of stories we're paying attention to, the kind of data we're collecting is going to start to change again. Um, Orla, maybe I ask you first, I mean, what are you tracking as you go into into the holidays and the new year on this pandemic? Sure. So, so a recent focus uh, for our team, um, the banking team here at the journal, has been um, kind of just like taking stock, what we got right, what we got wrong, 
um, at the end of the year was mostly what we got wrong. Um, and just why this crisis has been so different um, than the last one. Um, so we're gonna do, do a series um, around that. And, and then another thing just heading into the new year is um, is how the relief programs are um, playing out for people in the long term. So what happens to the 5% of homeowners who are still in forbearance down from, I think about mm. a peak of like 9% in the spring. You know, what happens to them when they've been in this forbearance for probably like 12 months come March and April and they're so many thousands of dollars behind on their mortgage um, and, and maybe still in, in financial distress and they can't make that transition into resuming payments. Um, what are the off, what are lenders going to offer in, in those situations? That's very refreshing. You're going to take a, a look at what you got wrong over yeah. the year. It's actually what disaster research is supposed to be about. Uh, and this is a disaster we're learning about so much. I look forward to reading that. Thanks for that. Um, Mel, same question to you. What is your center? You're working on so many things, but what are you particularly interested in going in as we move into this next phase of the pandemic? Yeah, so um, we are keeping our nose to the grindstone and trying to help uh, local governments um, in this time when they can take advantage of people's heightened understanding of the importance of housing to get their strategies ready and get them in place while they have the political will to do so. Um, you know, we've gotten more attention about housing in the past year than we ever have. Mm. Um, and, and we're really trying to take advantage of that. I'm working with, I don't know, six communities right now on local housing strategies um, to beef up their ability to provide for everyone from extremely low income up to moderate income. Um, and at the same time, our center is heavily focused on innovation and what can we do to get more houses on the ground quicker that are less expensive to operate, less expensive to buy. Um, so on the horizon, you know, we've got 3D printing and cool mechanical systems um, going on. And, and just one note on the innovation piece is that indoor air quality has become an important uh, consideration sure. in both multifamily and, um, and single family housing. So we have some researchers um, working on, on that um, also and, and, and monitoring all of these health aspects and energy aspects of our housing. Um, so yes, we're working on, on so much of it, but really trying to take advantage of this moment. That's so interesting. I, mean, I guess that's the tech side of being at Virginia Tech, right? <laughs> that you have that capacity to work with engineers and others who are yes. cognizant of those concerns. Um, I want to point people to the website for your research center, too. Um, can you put that in the chat, and I'll bring that up on screen, because there's a lot of really cool projects going on there. Um, Marie, let me just, I'm going to give you the last word. Again, I know you've got, um, pick your metaphor, you're juggling a lot of things, plates spinning, there's a lot going on with the Fair Housing Center. You're advocating in so many different areas. Where do you see yourself spending the most time in the next few months? The, the, in the immediate future, um, I think that the um, it's going to we're going to be working very hard on all of the evictions that are um, going to be filed, no doubt, come January and February, uh, when the, unless there's some kind of a uh, moratorium that continues the um, the CDC moratorium. 
um, you know, we, we have a very good relationship with our local housing court. And so when the CDC moratorium came into effect, we were able to help create a form for people to fill out to show that they had taken the steps that are mandated in the moratorium so that when they go to court, they're able to, you know, use that to their advantage. Um, and we've worked very closely with legal aid and our local, you know, legal service organizations. So I suspect that our landlord tenant mediation program is uh, going to be uh, very heavily, uh, you know, relied on uh, during, you know, January, February, March, while we figure this out. Mm-hmm. And um, and then, you know, our, our advocacy, you know, we're still investigating housing discrimination. Um, mm-hmm. We are still, you know, doing all of the education and outreach and all of the things that a Fair Housing Center always does. You know, we have uh, cases pending with the Ohio Civil Rights Commission and, you know, lawsuits pending, things like that. So um, we never thought it would be possible, but we actually this year have been busier than ever. And I see next year as a continuation of that. Um, and I'm really looking forward to seeing where our public advocacy goes, our policy advocacy work. Uh, we, you know, had some really great successes this year, and um, still have projects that we are working on. So <clears throat> I have a feeling 2021 is going to be incredibly busy, um, and hopefully, you know, we'll be able to figure some things out with predictions that I know I just know are looming out there. I want to remind everybody you've been listening to COVID calls and you can catch COVID calls every weekday at 5 p.m. Eastern time. And I want to thank my guests for doing this quite extraordinary and crucial work at this time. Orla McCaffrey, Mel Jones, and Marie Flannery, thanks a million for uh, coming on COVID calls today. It's great to speak with you. Thank you so much for inviting me. Stay healthy, everybody. We'll see you on Monday, 5 o'clock.